So we're continuing our study on holy habits, essential practices for everyone who wants to be a follower of Jesus. And so far we've been working through some of the basics. We've worked through the importance of scripture being in the word of God, being a part of a worshiping community, the importance of worship. Last week, Len helping us understand the centrality and the importance of prayer. Today we're gonna cover another one of those core foundational ideas, and that is the importance of being in spiritual community. Now, everywhere you go where there are people, you will notice they all have this tendency to group up, to form communities. Happens everywhere. We come together with people that have common interests, common identity markers, for instance, ethnicity, and uh, common experiences. And the reason why we do that is because it's part of our nature. All you have to do is go to your memories of high school to prove that we tend to group up. You have the jocks, the prom queen and king, the beautiful people. You have the academic scholars. You have the nerds who everybody else is going to be working for 10 years from now. And you even have the outsiders who actually find community by being on the outside together. You know, we, by nature, group up, and that's because that's how God wired us. We were created for a community. When we go back to Genesis, we see this uh, amazing little verse that you may be familiar with. Let's say this together. God said, let us create humankind in our image, and so God created humanity in his own image, male and female. He created them. This is the first place in Scripture that we see evidence that God himself exists in community. We call that the Trinity. By the time of Jesus, that idea of God being three persons yet existing in one, uh, that's very clear by the time of Jesus' ministry. But here we even see it in the very first chapter, God speaking in plural and yet acting as one. So God exists in perfect community. And he created us in his image to exist in community with him, but also with one another. And we see that in the garden. Adam and Eve have this community with one another, naked, unashamed, this perfect and complete unity and transparency, and yet also they had community with God as he would come and fellowship with them. So the fall, when we rejected God and rebelled against him and fell, the fall not only broke our communion or our community with God, it also broke our capacity to have true community with one another. The expression of our natural tendency to group up in our fallenness reverses. Instead of us being inclusive, our tendency for community actually becomes exclusive. We exclude people. And so community now takes on these words, prejudice, cliques, racism, class warfare. These are the broken remains that come from a fallen nature that wants to group up by excluding others and villainizing and victimizing others. By the sixth chapter of Genesis, not far into the story of the human race, we see this verse, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become, 
and the earth was corrupt and full of violence. So now, the gospel, what God did to bring restoration to the human spirit and eventually to all creation, solves not only our communion with God, but it also solves and fixes our communion with each other. And the way God did that was by forming what we refer to as the new community, Christ's new community that he spoke of in Matthew chapter 16. Christ has now been journeying with his disciples for about a year and a half or so. They've been watching him, they've been living with him, they've been listening to him, and finally Christ calls them to commitment. Who do the crowds say that I am? That's just the warm-up question. Leading to the big question, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter becomes the very first human in history to profess Jesus as Savior and Lord. And from that time on, millions of people will do the same thing, including many of us here today who have made a commitment to Jesus in the same way Peter did. And then Christ said, on this truth, on this reality, I'm going to build my church. The Greek word for church is the word ekklesia. How many have heard that word? It means to be called out from, but not just called from, but called into something. The church is the people of God who have professed faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord, who have therefore been called out of the society, the culture of fallenness, and called into this new people of God, this new humanity. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 and 16. Let's say this together. Christ himself is our peace, who has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, to create one new humanity through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. So we see that the cross restores community, not only with God, but with each other. That the church is the expression of God's new community. And then that community, that true community, is essential for our life and our vitality and, and our growth as a Christian. We need each other. How many of you have attended uh, one of our starting point lunches, our newcomer lunch? Hopefully a good number of you have. You may remember that we reviewed three of our priorities as a church around the greatest commandment, the second commandment, and the new commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the priority of worship. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the priority of generosity. And then the new commandment, love one another. That's the priority of community. And what I often do in newcomers class is say to you, if you go to a Bible search website, for instance, BibleGateway.com, and in the New Testament you do a search for these two words, one another, what will come up is somewhere around 35 passages in the Bible that talk about things that we are to do with or be for one another. Here's a smattering of them right now for you to look at. Maybe we'll take a moment now, and as you look at that, which of those phrases jumps out to you as something that's, that's meaningful? Say it out loud so 
we can all hear it. Love one another. Be devoted, encourage, honor, build up, forgive. Stop judging. Yeah. Here's the point. Everything about your spiritual journey is supposed to happen in community. You are incomplete as a child of God if you're trying to pursue him on your own. You need to be active and a part of this new community, and you need to be a contributor to it. I was trying to come up with a way to express this as opposed to how many of us treat the Christian community, and I created these diagrams. I hope they make sense to you. The first is a diagram of somebody who has yet to come to Christ as their Savior. They are obviously at the center of their life. Then they have these various groups or communities in which they divide their time. And then at some point, you encounter Christ. You realize that's what you're missing and you invite him to take control of your life. And this often is the result. You have Jesus in big letters and you in little letters. That's how it's supposed to be. Big Jesus, little you at the heart of your life. Sometimes it's you in big letters and little Jesus in your life. But Jesus takes control. He's the hub of your existence. And then church becomes one of your communities. And you divide your time between these communities. And I think that is how most Christians go about relating to the church. But that is not what God intended. This is what it ought to look like. Jesus is at the center of our lives, and our relationship with everything and everyone else flows out of our identity with Christ and his people. This is what he intended. We have been made part of a community that is at the center of our life, and out of which we now relate to every other group and every other community. There's a, a a powerful chapter in Scripture, 1 Peter chapter 2. If you really want to read a descriptive of what the people of God, the body of Christ is, read Peter's description of it. This is one thing that he says. Let's say it together. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The powerful truth here is that no matter what your background is, no matter what your ethnicity, no matter if you grew up in privilege or grew up on subsidies and welfare, we have all become one people of God out of a common story. Now, I don't mean to suggest that all of our stories somehow are dismissed, but what I want to say is our common story is that all of us were in need of mercy. I want to tell you, the wealthiest person in this room, that doesn't give you a leg up with Jesus. It doesn't get you closer to God. At the foot of the cross, you are a broken person in need of mercy. We all find equal footing in our need for grace. And then when we find grace, that becomes our commonality. When we find mercy, that's what defines who we are. It's a beautiful thing. I want to read a quote from Matt Chandler. I am Anglo, but I am no longer primarily Anglo. I am a husband, but I am not primarily a husband. I am a father, but I am not primarily a father. 
I'm a pastor, but I'm not even primarily a pastor. I have been bought by the blood of Christ, adopted into the family of God, and placed among the communion of saints so that you and I now become a type of family that transcends all other identity markers which means I am more loyal to you in our shared identity underneath that Savior than anything else that would mark us as being similar or different. It's not hard for us to think that this transcends our similarities, but I'm telling you, this transcends our differences. I have more in common with an Iraqi national who loves Jesus Christ than I do with an American who wants nothing to do with him. I'm not ashamed to say it. I have more in common with an Iranian national who loves Jesus Christ than I do with an American who wants nothing to do with Jesus. My family is the household of faith. I will be spending eternity with a group of men and women who have bent the knee to Jesus. We have the same Savior. You and I have said yes to the same Lord, and that makes us the community of faith. You see it? Everything you are as a Christian needs to flow out of your relationship with Christ and his people. Now you may be thinking, well Tom, what about the other communities I'm a part of? Are you saying I abandon those communities? Of course not. But what I'm telling you is, you're a better father in your family if you're operating out of this community of, of the saints. You're a better friend, you're a better employee or a better boss. Every other community that you're a part of becomes part of the redemptive work of God through you when you do it as part of a more significant and primary identity as a member of the people of God. Does that make sense to you? Exactly. Now, that sounds amazing. But there is constantly a threat that we face when it comes to this true community. I want to take you to John chapter 17, so I'm going to ask you to turn there with me. And as you're turning, let me give you some context here. John devotes the majority of his gospel to a single night, Christ's final night and teaching to his disciples before he is arrested and is crucified. What we're about to read is a section in what we refer to as Christ's priestly prayer. He speaks to the Father about his mission. He, he speaks personally to the Father in the hearing of his disciples. He prays for his disciples for the days that are ahead for them. And then, here's what I want you to understand. There is a moment in this prayer when Jesus prays for you and me. He looks down the corridor of time and he prays for all of those who in the future will come to believe in him. And so what you're about to read is something Jesus prayed for you and me specifically. We're gonna start at verse 20 of John chapter 17. My prayer is not for them alone, that was the disciples who were with him. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, 
so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now I want you to think about something here. I could come up with a pretty good list of things that Jesus might have thought to pray for you and me. He might have chosen to pray that we would stand firm against the persecution. Millions of Christians who have given up their life for the faith. He may have have prayed for success in our mission. Any number of things he could have prayed. He chose to pray for one thing. That we would be united as a community of faith. Why that? I think it's because Jesus knew that the enemy of the work of God would be working to divide us. And I think he knew if he divided us, we would fail in our mission. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, may they be one that the world will know that you sent me. And here's the thing. History will verify what I'm about to say. Are you ready? We stink at community. Christians stink at conflict. (laughs) Am I right? Can I use stink? I can do the King James thing, stinketh. (laughs) You see it begin in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 6. And you see conflict and division happening all the way through. No wonder Jesus cried out to his heavenly Father, Lord, let them be one. Because that's how the world's going to really see and believe our message. I would dare to say that the reason why New England is no longer a Christian region and is now post-Christian to the point where we see ourselves as missionaries is because those Christians that came before us failed to demonstrate the love of Christ by loving each other. And that's not in my notes either. (laughs) But I think it's true. For a while, our family lived in Niles, Ohio. My dad pastored a church there, First Baptist Church. They were the original Baptist church in town. And on our way driving to First Baptist, we would go by every week Faith Baptist Church. It was on the outskirts of town. I eventually learned that Faith Baptist Church was a split from First Baptist Church. There was some conflict they couldn't resolve. So Faith Baptist Church says, you guys, we're, we're stepping out on faith. We're leaving you guys, you dead wood behind. We're going to do something for the kingdom. So there, there was Faith Baptist. And Faith Baptist and First Baptist n- never talked to each other. Now, in Niles Township, outside of Niles, there was another Baptist church. Called itself Fellowship Baptist Church. You can almost tell the story of these churches by the names, can't you? Fellowship Baptist was people who were so sick of the bickering between First and Faith that they said, we're going to do it right. We're going to be a church that has real fellowship. I'm not sure which of them today has fbc.org because evidently all three of them would, would qualify for that. First Faith Fellowship Baptist Church. But isn't that illustrative of what we've done to the name of Christ as a people? Paul had to deal with this in the early church. And the lessons we learn from his teaching are very relevant to us today as well. So I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to begin reading at verse 26. 
So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And so now there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, look at the language there. Neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. I think Paul is addressing the three primary ways that as human beings we divide ourselves and have discord and disunity and bigotry. The first is ethnic division, Jew or Gentile. The second is class warfare, slave or free. Remember, slavery in the Roman world meant the entire working class. You were either a citizen of Rome and you didn't work, or you're part of the working class and you were owned by somebody. This is really class warfare. It's not like the dark slavery of our history in America. And then finally, gender equality. Neither male nor female. You know when the battle of the sexes began? Who knows when that began? At the fall. Read God's pronouncement to Adam and Eve, who represented the entire human race, and you will see this whole constant battle that we have of inequity between men and women was a result of our fallen nature. It's one of the things that Christ sought to restore in the church. These divisions threaten the complete unity that Jesus wants for his church. And they still do today. Isn't that interesting? It's important that we work to eradicate these conflicts from the church. Not just in our particular congregation, but throughout the entire body of Christ. I want to be clear here. It is God's will that we not divide ourselves by these things. It is God's plan. What was meant to set us apart was that we didn't divide by these things, that we were one, that we valued everybody, and we sat side by side in worship and in service, that we learned and grew from one another equally. This was supposed to be the mission. And if the church of Jesus Christ wants the world around us to see Jesus, they need to see him in us. And so coming together and working against these things becomes part of our mission. It's why as a church from the very beginning, we said we want to be an ethnically diverse people of God. We're, we're not quite there, but we're working at it. And so I want to say something to you. If you have issues around any of these areas in terms of your philosophy of culture, if you're among the privileged who see people who haven't achieved what you've achieved as simply not working hard enough, then you have blind spots that are keeping you from actually seeing people because you're holding to your principles. And if you actually get in relationship with people who are different than you, it will radically change your principles that you want so desperately to debate with somebody about. Because we see people in their story and we understand what it will mean to champion their cause and, and to see God's kingdom come. 
Am I making my point here? Let me further say that if you're not open to growing in these areas, not only are you going to be uncomfortable here, but you're going to be uncomfortable in heaven. (laughs) You're going to be uncomfortable in the kingdom of God. Revelation 7 gives us this beautiful picture of what awaits us. Let's say it together. Before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they cried out with a loud voice. Let's do this. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's what awaits us. You see, it's beautiful. And part of what Jesus taught us to pray and therefore work towards is to see that reality come to earth as it will be and is in heaven. It's part of our mission, it's part of our cause. And the closer we get to achieving that, the more we will fulfill our mission of pointing people in the world around us to Jesus. It's amazing. I wanna land on just one more passage of scripture and talk about what it means to do community, and that's Colossians chapter three, beginning at verse five to verse 17. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. Every one of those words is about relational conflict. Every single one of those words that we are to put aside. Destroy community. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. There it is. Christ prayed that we would come to complete unity How do we get there? Above everything else, we practice his agapeo, his unconditional love. That's what binds us in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts, and whatever you do. Now, every time it says you in this passage, it's plural. So this isn't a message to you as an individual follower of Jesus. 
This is a message to us. And he concludes with, and whatever you, all of you do, whether in word or deed, you do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Here's my challenge to you. When you read that in the context of what we've talked about, Christ's prayer for our unity, how that lack of unity is destroying our mission on earth of pointing people to the love of Christ, doesn't it just ring as something that your heart cries out to be a part of? Don't you want to be part of that community? My challenge to you is to be in this passage, Colossians 3, what I just read, every day in the, in the days coming up. Allow the Holy Spirit to bring conviction of where you have contributed to malice and to gossip and to slander and where your anger has broken community and bring that to God. And then ask him to bring these qualities of humility and patience and grace and unconditional love. If we all did that, if we made this passage our life's theme, we would be one. And God would use us, I believe, to glorify himself and draw others into this. When you look at heaven in Revelation 7, and every time in scripture, it talks about our diversity as a people. There is one word that we often use that scripture never uses. Scripture refers to our difference as tribes, tongues, nations, people. The one word scripture never divides humanity by is the word race. Because God only made one. He made one race. In amazing diversity, and you and I are part of that if we've bent the knee to Jesus.